Well, the text of Scripture that we're focusing on this evening is only one sentence. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We're only looking at that verse tonight. Just one sentence. It's the opening sentence of the Bible. It is a tremendously important sentence. It reports to us the fact of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the fact of creation. The current Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines a fact as, quote, a piece of information presented as having objective reality, end quote. The Bible certainly does present the information in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 as having objective reality. For example, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, we read that, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So the Bible clearly does present the information in Genesis chapter 1, and verse 1, as having objective reality. The Bible does not present this information as a myth or as a bedtime story. The rest of the Bible assumes that this is actually how the world began. But let's think again about the definition that Merriam-Webster's dictionary has given us of a fact. A piece of information presented as having objective reality. That is actually a terrible definition of a fact. Because if we operated on that definition of a fact, even a lie would be a fact. Because so long as someone presents something to you as having objective reality, it would be a fact. And so uh, that definition that Merriam-Webster's current edition of their dictionary gives us is actually a terrible definition of a fact. The 1828 edition of Merriam-Webster's dictionary has a much better definition of a fact. Truth. <laughs> so you can see how far we've come from 1828 until now that even our dictionary definitions are changing. So in 1828, a fact is true. And now a fact is a piece of information presented as having objective reality. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is the fact of creation in the 1828 sense of the term. It is the truth of creation. This information is not merely presented as having objective reality. This information has objective reality. Not only does the Bible present this information as being true, this information is true. This is the fact of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to do two things tonight. We're going to first consider the rationality of believing the fact of creation. The fact that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the second thing that we're going to do is we're going to apply the fact of creation to our lives. So let's begin by exploring how it is rational for us to believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How do we know this is true? Let me give you the simple answer first. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We can go to the bank on what the Bible says. So kids, you can go to the bank on what the Bible says. New believers, experienced saints, we can all go to the bank on what the Bible says. You actually don't have to understand the most complex things about the Bible in order to just take it uh, at face value and believe it and trust it. You don't have to 
necessarily know all the most complex arguments about everything. If the Bible teaches something, it's true. So how do we know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Psalm 119 verse 99 says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. In other words, those who understand what God testifies to, God's testimonies, namely the Bible, understand more than unbelieving academics who read and write many books and yet fail to submit themselves to the truth of this particular one. Now here's a more complex answer uh, to why we know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is a complex sentence that follows and I'm going to unpack it. And I think it will be clearer uh, in a little while what I mean when I say this. Genesis 1.1 is a self-authenticating revelation from God presupposed to be true, yes, but demonstrating complete rational consistency and having complete explanatory power. I'm going to unpack that at length, looking at each technical term by itself. Let's start with self-authenticating. When I say that Genesis 1.1 is self-authenticating, this is what I mean. The Bible, the whole Bible, is self-authenticating, which means that we cannot appeal to a higher authority than God Himself who has spoken in the pages of Scripture. When you make a truth claim, you must authenticate it by appealing to a standard other than yourself. If you write an essay for school and you make a truth claim, you've got to put a footnote or an end note and back up what you're saying by appealing to an authority outside of yourself. If someone asks you, how do you know that such and such a claim is true? You cannot, you cannot just say, because I said so. <laughs> doesn't work like that. We must cite authorities other than ourselves to verify what we are saying. This is because we are not ourselves the source and standard of truth. We did not create and define the world, nor are we infallible interpreters of the world. So our words are not self-authenticated. Our words must be authenticated from outside sources. An example might help here. It's been a very bad hurricane season here in the Caribbean, hasn't it? Hopefully, there will not be another major hurricane. Yet, I cannot simply say there will not be another major hurricane this year. If I were to make such a claim, I must show weather charts and data to support what I'm saying. So our words are not self-authenticating. We need to appeal to something outside of ourselves to authenticate the truth claims that we make. In contrast, God's words authenticate God's words. This is because God is Himself the source and standard of truth. God did create and define the world. And God is the infallible interpreter of the world in which we live. So God need not, nor could He, appeal to a higher standard outside of Himself in order to authenticate his own words. You can't say God is right because my science teacher said so. You can't say God is right because such and such uh, proves that God is right. That actually doesn't make any sense. You're appealing to the lesser to prove the greater. 
if God is truly the highest being in existence, and He is, then we cannot authenticate His words by any corroborating standard outside of Himself. If God has said it, it's true, period. And who is what is made to speak back to the Creator and say, no, that's not true. So if God has said it, it is true, period. In that way, God's words are unlike anyone else's words, in that God's words are self-authenticated. Now let's talk about revelation. The fact of creation is given to us ultimately by revelation. We didn't merely deduce that God created the heavens and the earth, though we could have, so that's actually the most rational deduction to be made. But God has not God has chosen not to merely leave us to our speculations and deductions, but God has chosen to reveal to us that He created the heavens and the earth. A revelation is not ultimately a discovery that we made, but a truth that we receive. Now let's talk about the idea of this self-authenticating revelation being presupposed to be true. The fact that there is a God who created all things and who has revealed Himself to us is presupposed in the Christian worldview. We cannot technically prove it by any modern standard of proof. Thus, when we say that we believe there is a God because God told us that He is there, critics of Christianity accuse us of circular reason. And in a sense, they're right. We are building our worldview on a presupposition that God is there. But many critics have not considered that they too have worldviews and that their worldviews are also based on truth claims that they presuppose rather than prove. Let me explain. A worldview is a set of beliefs about the way the world is and contains answers to questions like what is right and wrong, what is the meaning of life, etc. And we all have a worldview. We all have a worldview whether we are conscious of it or not. Christians have a worldview, non-Christians have a worldview, everyone has a worldview. And again, we, whether we are conscious of it or not, we all make foundational assumptions at the bottom of our worldview about uh, that, that upon which we build, and these foundational assumptions we can't technically prove, but nevertheless we build our worldviews upon the foundation of those basic assumptions. So for example, if I asked an atheistic evolutionist, how did the human species come into existence? He might say through evolution. And I might say, where did the raw material come from by which human beings evolved? And he might say, the Big Bang. And I may say, and how do you know that the Big Bang happened? And he might say, because scientists say so. And I might say, well, how do you know that the scientists are right? And so on and so forth. We could go back and back and back and back and ask why and why and why and how do you know and how do you know and how do you know? And at the end of the day, everyone has foundational assumptions at the bottom of their worldview that they presuppose. Everyone has that, not just Christians. Theologians call these basic assumptions presuppositions. The things you presuppose to be true upon which you build the rest of your world. We all have presuppositions, but not all presuppositions are equally valid or equally plausible. We're not left to a coin toss or a roulette wheel or even our preferences or whims to determine exactly which presuppositions we should hold which foundational assumptions are best to make. 
Graham Goldsworthy, in his book, Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics, speaks of testing our presuppositions for rational consistency and explanatory power. So to illustrate how we might test the presupposition, how do we test our presupposition that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Well, one way we know that it is true that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is because only the worldview that rests on this presupposition is rationally consistent and has explanatory power. Only a biblical worldview, only the worldview built upon the, that presupposition is rationally consistent and has explanatory power. In other words, we can know that the presupposition in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is true because it actually makes sense of the world and does not fall apart when it is under intense scrutiny. It is demonstrably true. The Bible gives us the correct presuppositions to start with and logically subsequent. The Bible gives us the correct interpretation of the world, which is rationally consistent with the way things actually are and has the power to explain the way things actually are. So a biblical worldview is rationally consistent and gives a satisfying explanation of the world all the way down to the level of presuppositions or our foundational assumptions. So the most fundamental presupposition that we Christians make is that there is a God and He created everything and He reveals Himself to us. The biblical worldview built on this presupposition is rationally consistent and has explanatory power. Now by contrast, and this might help make things clearer, by contrast, a worldview based on any other presupposition will lack rational consistency and explanatory power somewhere along the line. Let me just give you a few examples. I'm just going to skim the surface of each of these, but I'd be happy to talk further afterward if anyone wants to discuss a little bit further, or we can talk about it on Wednesday at Community Group. But here are a few examples of wrong worldviews based on presuppositions other than God as creator. And each of these worldviews that follow lacks rational consistency and explanatory power. Here's the first one. Many people's worldview is based on the presupposition that everything came from nothing. The, that non-eternal matter did, once did not exist, and then at some point it did. This is nonsense. Just think about that. There was nothing, and then suddenly there was something. This is being put forward as a viable alternative to God the Creator who made and formed everything? Really? Because think about that. How can something come from nothing? There's nothing irrational about an eternally existent being. But there is something utterly irrational about something coming from nothing. Non-existence suddenly turning into existence apart from anything outside of itself. That's, that's nonsense. That makes no sense whatsoever. Now some might admit that it sounds stupid to say so baldly that something suddenly came from nothing. And R.C. Sproul tells a story of reading, reading an essay by a Nobel Prize winning physicist who spoke of, quote, gradual spontaneous regeneration. Or pardon me, not regeneration, gradual spontaneous generation. Sproul says, and I quote, Our scientist wanted to debunk the myth that something can come suddenly from nothing, 
and replace it with a better myth that something can come gradually from that thing. But the problem here is that it is just as illogical to think that something can slowly come from nothing as it is to think that something can quickly come from nothing. In fact, it's actually more illogical to think that something can slowly come from nothing than it is to think that something can quickly come from nothing. Because here's the thing. In the change from nothingness to somethingness, one microsecond there is nothing, and the next microsecond there is something. So how can that happen slowly? Yes, it so everything coming from nothing is nonsense, no matter how quickly or slowly it is positive to have happened. So that worldview is rationally inconsistent. It is inconsistent even within itself. It cannot even explain itself, let alone explaining anything else. So um, that's the first example of a bad worldview. Here's another example. Many people's worldview is based on a presupposition that matter is eternal. So they see the problem with non-existence giving way to existence. And so they posit that matter is eternal and that everything simply arranges and rearranges, decomposes and recomposes again apart from divine influence. And we're told that a sense of meaning and purpose is found in embracing all that is as sacred and realizing that you are living uh, in the midst of something much bigger than yourself. That you are living in a universe that is full of beauty and meaning and um, that basically what we need to do is just look at all that is and embrace it as wonderful and sacred and so on and so forth and find meaning and purpose within it. But this worldview doesn't have rational consistency or explanatory power either. This worldview is more rational than the first that I mentioned because if you have eternal matter, eternal matter hypothetically could rearrange and arrange and compose and decompose and so on and so forth. But here's where um, this worldview breaks down. It doesn't have explanatory power because what meaning is there, or pardon me, it doesn't have rational consistency because what meaning is there in becoming food for worms? What meaning is there in us living our lives and then dying and going into the ground and, and being eaten by worms and in knowing that the world as we know it will be obliterated forever at some point, inevitably, in some sort of cosmic accident sooner or later. In other words, if matter is eternal and just randomly arranges and rearranges apart from some kind of divine influence, then there actually is no meaning and no purpose. So you actually can't have a meaningful world with eternal matter that randomly arranges and rearranges. Which leads us to our third bad worldview. Many people's worldview is, goes something like this. They see that non-existence can't just come into existence apart from an outside influence. And they see that they can't have meaning if matter is eternally just composing and decomposing randomly. And so the third worldview is actually the most rationally consistent and it goes like this. Matter is eternal and it randomly arranges and rearranges and decomposes and composes again and there is no meaning to it all. And we live in a world that is just random chance. We don't know why we're here. There probably is actually no reason why we're here. It's just, we're just here. This is actually the most rationally consistent worldview of the three that I just mentioned. But, and we're told 
that the best way forward, the key to living well, is just simply accept that it's the way it is. And just face it manfully. Stop feeling bad for yourself. Accept that you're a cosmic accident and get on with your life. Enjoy it as much as you can. Go through life gaining as much pleasure from it as you're able. If you want to follow social norms from a utilitarian motive in, in order that your life might turn out the way that you prefer, fine. If not, don't worry about it. You can't really say it's moral or immoral. Um, just whatever, no purpose, no right and wrong. This is the most rationally consistent worldview of the three examples that I've given you. And it's built on the presupposition that matter is eternal and arranges and rearranges itself randomly. However, this presupposition undergirds a worldview that lacks explanatory power. Though it may have rational consistency, it does not have explanatory power. We all know, and non-Christians all know, that there is meaning and purpose. That there is right and wrong. Because God has written His law on our hearts. And that God has uh, entered into the human race in covenantal relationship. And so, all people know that there is a God. All people know that they have responsibilities toward Him. Whereby, all people know that there is right and wrong, and there is meaning and purpose to life. And so we can, people can deny that and suppress that truth and unrighteousness and say that they're holding to this other worldview about eternal matter and randomness and so on and so forth, but everybody knows that that lacks explanatory power. And so that's what we've seen is three bad worldviews which are built on bad presuppositions. And that's just some examples, but I'm trying to illustrate for you that there are certain things that are presupposed by everybody, not just Christians. And when you have bad presuppositions, your worldview breaks down somewhere. And for Christians, we have a good presupposition, and our worldview actually doesn't break down anywhere. It's rationally consistent and has explanatory power, insofar that it's biblical. That doesn't mean that all Christians everywhere have a rationally consistent worldview. But insofar that we have a biblical worldview, um, correctly interpreting and understanding the Bible and building on correct biblical presuppositions, our worldview is rationally consistent and has explanatory power. So, what happened at the beginning? How did we get here? Aren't these questions that everyone asks? These are not just Christian questions. These are human questions. We all want to know the true story of our origins. And Genesis 1.1 gives us the answer to those questions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Believing that God Himself has told us in Genesis 1.1 that He created the world is rationally consistent and has the power to explain what happened in the beginning. In other words, it's foundational to a worldview that can actually make sense of the past. The fact of creation serves as a sturdy foundation for the only worldview that can actually make sense of the world we live in, namely the worldview put forth in the Bible. So, we know that Genesis 1-1 is true, and now I'm going to come back to that complex sentence, and hopefully we'll have more meaning now. Genesis 1-1 is true because it is a self-authenticating revelation from God, presupposed to be true, yes, but having complete rational consistency and having complete explanatory power. It is an accurate statement about the past. 
But the truth that God created the world does not have relevance only for us in understanding our past, but also for our present and our future. Let's now apply Genesis 1-1 to our lives. What difference does it make after having seen that it is rational to believe Genesis 1-1 to be fact? What difference does it make? Or what difference ought it to make in our lives? The fact of creation should make us Godward people. We should be Godward first in our search for answers. If it is true that God created the heavens and the earth, it is not irrational to think further that God would communicate with His creation. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It is irrational to deny that God the Creator could and would speak to His creation. The idea of a speaking God is not an irrational product of primitive thinking. No, the idea of a speaking God is rationally consistent with the presupposition that there is a God. The idea of a speaking God is rationally consistent with the fact given to us in the Bible that we humans are said to be made in God's image and that we are relational beings. The idea of a speaking God is rationally consistent with the fact that we all know in our hearts that there is a God and that we have a relationship of some sort with it. Even those who try to suppress that knowledge and claim to be atheists. And the idea of a speaking God explains the way that things actually are. Explains how we have also such a remarkable collection of information as the Bible, which speaks so profoundly to the human experience and to the world in which we live. The fact that there is a speaking God or the presupposition that there is a speaking God makes sense of the fact that this book presents facts about history, science, and anthropology, as well as religion, and does so in an astoundingly unified fashion, given that it was written by approximately 40 people over the span of a couple millennia. What other presupposition, other than the presupposition that there is a speaking God, is rational to make sense of this book? Now consider this. If there is a God who has created all things and has spoken to us, which there is, then it is not rational to ignore that God, but rather to listen to Him. There's a story which tries to illustrate the effort that we make as humans to understand questions of origin and ultimate meaning. You've probably heard it before from unbelievers, but a Presbyterian pastor in the U.S. named Kevin DeYoung puts a twist on it. Allow me a lengthy quote. DeYoung says, do you remember the famous story about the six blind men and the elephant? One blind man touches the belly of the animal and thinks it's a wall. Another grabs the elephant's ear and thinks that he's touching a fan. A third blind man touches the tail and thinks that he's holding a rope. On they go, each grabbing a part of the elephant without any one of them knowing what it is they really feel. What's the point of the story, DeYoung asks. We are all blind men when it comes to God. We know part of Him, but we don't really know who He is. We are all just grasping in the dark, thinking we know more than we do. But, DeYoung says, there is a major problem with this analogy. The story is a perfectly good description of human inability to know God by our own devices, but the story never considers this paradigm-shattering question. 
What if the elephant talks? <laughs> what if he tells the blind man, that wall-like structure is my side? That fan is really my ear. And that's not a rope, it's a tail. If the elephant were to say all this, would the six blind men be considered humble for ignoring his word? Can you imagine the scene? There are six blind men feeling around the elephant, but the elephant himself speaks. The six men ignore what the elephant says and just continue to speculate about their findings. Let's take a step, this a step further and insert another character into the story. A seventh person who believes the elephant and calls to the others, the elephant is telling us what he is. We should believe him. Who is more rational? Those who ignore the elephant or those who believe the elephant? This is analogous to the religious experience in this world. There are those who, by the powers of their own deduction, try to reason about God's existence and qualities, or His non-existence, as the case may be. But God is there, and He talks. And the most rational thing, therefore, is to believe God. So we should be Godward in our search for answers. As we've already mentioned, we all ask, how did we get here? What happened in the beginning? And Genesis 1-1 answers those questions. But Genesis 1-1 also points us in the right direction when our hearts ask further questions like, why are we here? What is the purpose of life? Or what will happen to me in the end? Genesis 1-1 is relevant not only for answering questions about the past, but Genesis 1-1 is also relevant for answering questions about the present and the future as it directs us to bring the pressing questions of our hearts here and now in the 21st century to the only one who could actually answer them, the God who made the heavens and the earth. Robert Candlish, a Scottish minister, tells the story of a person who had never seen a watch, finding a watch in the desert. And he concludes that it's not part of the natural environment. The watch is not in the same category as trees and sand and animals. The watch did not grow there, nor did it hatch there. The person finding the watch concludes that the watch has not been there from time immemorial. Seeing how everything fits together so precisely, and how it seems to have a plain design, the person concludes that the watch must have had a maker, and starts thinking about what kind of person its maker must be, and for what purpose the watch has been made. Then, the maker shows up. Candlish says, your position is now reversed as soon as the maker shows up. Instead of questioning the watch concerning its maker, you now question the maker concerning the watch. You hear not what the mechanism has to say of the mechanic, but what the mechanic has to say of the mechanism. In a similar manner, our duty as creatures, Candlish says, is not to hear the creation speaking of the Creator, but to hear the Creator speaking of the creation. God Himself appears and tells us authoritatively who He is and what He has done and why He did it. And the most rational thing is to believe Him. So we ought to look to God in the present, here, right now, on this island, with the sea surrounding us, with the skies above us, right here in Barbados with the hustle and bustle of modern life going on all around us, 
the most rational thing to do is to look to God in the present. To look to God in the age of smartphones, internet, and connectivity. To look to God here in the present with so many conflicting and competing messages bombarding us from every angle. Mainstream media, alternative media, teachers, parents, peers. We ought to look to God here and now in the present with the questions of our hearts and ask Him to explain to us the world in which we live. We should pray, oh God, why are we here? And for what purpose have you formed me? Why do I exist? What should I be living for? What ought my priorities to be? How should I spend my time? How should I spend my money? What type of friends should I surround myself with? What am I aiming at as I raise my kids? What is my marriage for? What are we as a couple aiming for in our marriage? Oh God, help me make sense of my life. These should be the kinds of things that we pray as we consider the rationality of listening to the Maker speak about the watch. Listening to the Creator speak about the creation. Listening to the elephant speak instead of groping our way around trying to figure out what it is that we're feeling and touching. We should look to God with the questions of our hearts. And then what we should do is look to Him uh, uh, for answers, not only to the questions of our hearts about the present, but the questions of our hearts about the future. Oh God, what will happen to me when I die? What will happen to all of us? What will happen to this earth, to this universe, to this creation? Again, these are questions that we all ask, regardless of religious affiliation. These are human questions, and not just Christian questions. Every, there are as many answers to these questions out there as there are stars in the sky. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry has an answer to these questions. Uh, everyone wants to venture a guess about what will happen in the end. But again, just as it's most rational to look to God with our questions of origin, and just as it's most rational to look to God with our questions of pertaining to the present, so it is most rational to look to God with questions of terminus or destination. Where are we going? Where does this all end? So we ought to look to the one from whom are all things, the one who formed and presently sustains all things, and the one who is at the steering wheel of this world, as it were. It makes sense if there is someone steering this whole thing to ask the driver, where are we going? And so we should be Godward in our search for answers. But more than that, the Dutch theologian Herman Bobbing says, Scripture's teaching of creation is not presented as a philosophical explanation of the problem of existence. Well, it does give an answer to the question of origins, its true significance is religious and ethical. Positioning us properly before God, the doctrine of creation points us to the majesty, goodness, wisdom, and love of God, inspires praise and thanksgiving, induces humility and meekness before God, and provides consolation in time of suffering. The teaching of creation, Bavink says, strengthens people's faith and confirms their trust in God. To put that more simply, Genesis 1-1 wasn't given to us merely to scratch an intellectual itch, not merely to satisfy our curiosity about where we came from, 
Genesis 1-1 was not given to us merely to make us Godward in our search for information. But Genesis 1-1 was given to make us Godward in our love. We should be Godward in our love. We should not be like those in Romans 1 who loved the creation more than the Creator. We should not be like those the prophets decried who bowed before blocks of wood and stone instead of worshipping the Maker of wood and stone. We should not be like those who are wrapped up in other men and women made in the image of God rather than being people who are wrapped up in God Himself. In view of the fact that God is our Creator, we should be Godward in our love. And I want to say four things about being Godward in our love. The first is, it is right for us to be Godward in our love. Romans 1 says of sinners that they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is the language of morality, duty, imperative, right and wrong. We ought to have honored God and given thanks to Him. We ought to have worshipped and served the Creator rather than the creature. We ought to have acknowledged God. On this note, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 14 says, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. God requires worship because to Him belong the heaven, belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. And so it is right for us to be Godward in our love, and it is wrong for us not to be Godward in our love. We ought to be Godward. Secondly, it is good for us to be Godward in our love. Did you catch in Deuteronomy 10:13 what I just read? I am commanding you for your good. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God commands that we love Him. And He says that I'm commanding it to you for your good. And so it is right to be Godward in our love. And it is good for us to be Godward in our love. In Psalm 81 and verse 16, God says that He, quote, would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. In Psalm 1611, we read of God that in your presence there is fullness of joy. In, at your right hand are pleasures evermore. To have God is to have everything. To have God is to be satisfied. To lay hold of Him is to lay hold of everything. Therefore, to set our love on Him is not only right, but it is good for us. The third thing we need to see, however, is that it is impossible for us to be Godward in our love, in our natural state, apart from God's gracious intervention. When I say we and us, I mean the human race. In our natural state, though it is right and good for us to be Godward in our love, we are not, and in fact cannot be Godward in our love, naturally speaking. Ever since our first parents 
directed their love away from God shortly after creation in sinning against Him. We are all born with a spiritual disease called sin, which blinds us to the glory and goodness of God and kind of causes us to find no sweetness in Christ Jesus and drives us to created things rather than the Creator with the longings of our hearts. This is what sin does and we're all affected by it. We do not naturally set our love on God, but on God's creation. This is the state into which every person is born. And thus we are both guilty because we ought to have loved God and do not. And we are deprived because it would be good for us to love God, but we do not. And so we're missing out. So we are both guilty and deprived by nature. Walking around in our sin, loving other things other than God. We deserve punishment because we ought to be Godward in our love. And we're losing out because we do not get the satisfaction of being Godward in our love. But I said that it is impossible for us to be Godward in our love apart from God's intervention. And the good news is that God has intervened. And now, for Christians, as 1 John 4.19 says, we love because He first loved us. Here's how it works. We ought to have been Godward in our love. It would have been good for us to be Godward in our love, but we weren't. Adam and Eve directed their love elsewhere, preferring to find satisfaction in created things rather than the Creator. Loving the created world more than the Creator Himself. But instead of simply abandoning relationship with the human race, instead of simply pouring His wrath upon us for our sin and severing us all from Himself eternally, God, when we were not Godward in our love, God was manward in His love. When we should have directed our love toward Him, but did not, He who had no obligation to direct His love toward us, did. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for the sins of His elect, To bear His wrath in our place so that He could love us justly. Jesus, God's Son, came to do it willingly. And God's Spirit took our sin and laid it upon Him at the cross. And then God's Spirit took Jesus' righteousness and laid it upon us. And God's Spirit has given us a new heart to see and to believe that as believers in Christ Jesus, God has immeasurable love for us. Manifest and active at Calvary in order that we might once again direct our love Godward. The Gospel reorients our love back toward God. It makes it possible for us to love God again because at conversion we receive uh, the new birth, new hearts. And so uh, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we can actually do what is right with the help of God's Spirit. And so we actually can, by virtue of our regeneration, love God again. But also, seeing how God has dealt justly with our sin in the person of His Son at Calvary makes us, motivates us to love Him back. And so in conclusion then, it is not enough to accept the premise that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
along with the premise that we ought to respond to the fact of creation with Godward love. And it is not enough to claim some, to love some generic higher power, some generic deity of some sort. Nor is it sufficient to believe Genesis 1-1 and not the rest of Scripture. The Bible is a unified revelation of God. It starts with Genesis 1-1, but it doesn't stop there. The rest of the Bible builds on Genesis 1-1. To truly understand Genesis 1-1, then, is to understand and believe it in the context of God's revelation to us. The first of many words, but not the last. And not comprehensive in itself. Genesis 1-1 is the crucial starting point to a correct worldview. But it's not sufficient on its own. One must accept the first word, the last word, and all the middle words from God's mouth if one is truly to be said to believe God, to be Godward in his quest for information. One must believe Genesis 1 and all subsequent revelation then from God until God's revelation leads him to Christ Jesus, who is the pinnacle and goal of all God's revelation to us and the right ultimate object of our faith. It's not rational to believe Genesis 1-1 only and see God as creator while rejecting the testimony of the rest of the scriptures to God's Son entering into the world and redeeming us from our sin so that God is also not only creator but creator. That is not rational nor is it right. If Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of God's revelation to the world then what we need to do is start there, but not finish there. So as we continue to look at Genesis in the months ahead, remember that this is where it all starts. This is the context of it all. God made the world. He owns it. It is right for Him to claim our love, and it is good for us to love Him. The rest of the Bible is just unpacking these themes. How we did not love Him, though we ought to have, though it would have been good for us, we did not. But God was manward in His love in order that once again we might love Him having uh, received first the love that He directs towards us. The rest of the Bible just unpacks these themes and shows us the remedy for our failure to love God as we ought to have. 